0: This is the Find Dining Podcast, the Find Dining Podcast, for foodies who love travel and travelers who
1: love food. Here's your host, Seth Ressler.
2: Hi, this is Seth Ressler, founder of Taste Trekkers, and I know it's been a while, but I want to share with you something that happened to me in 2016 that uh, really meant a lot to me. Uh, Sheila Campbell of A La Carte Food Tours in Columbus, Ohio, uh, came to me in the beginning of the year. Now, Sheila and I knew each other because she had been a uh, participant in one of the food and travel expos that uh, I did in Providence, Rhode Island uh, a couple years earlier. And she came to me and she said, you know, I also do a lot in the realm of nutrition. And every year there is a big conference. It's called the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo. And there are thousands of dietitians and nutritionists and uh, all sorts of people who are interested in food science there and it's a big industry gathering and they are always interested in the latest trends that are happening in the world of food and she said do you want to apply uh, to speak there about food tourism we can do a joint session and uh, I said yes but I was thinking in the back of my head there's no way that any Dietitian or nutritionist wants to know what I have to say about food. I mean look at me right like they I have nothing to say that they're going to be interested in and so I just you know figured that no you know they would pass when we applied and that would be that Uh, except that they didn't they said yes. We want you to come and we want you to speak. Uh, And I was nervous about it. I was really nervous about it, to be honest with you. I didn't know exactly what I would say to this room full of hundreds of nutritionists. Uh, And uh, as I thought about it and put it together, I actually decided to tell the story of food tourism as I had learned it, as it happened to me. Uh, and a lot of the things that uh, I talked about in this session that I gave uh, were things that I had never talked about uh, in front of a live crowd before, uh, some of it very personal uh, and some of it about my journey with food tourism. And ultimately, what I decided to do was to uh, tell that story, my journey with food tourism, and uh, intercut it with uh, excerpts from this podcast series that I had done for several years. I'd done over a hundred podcast episodes interviewing uh, food bloggers and food tour operators and chefs and uh, tourism professionals, uh, really from all over the world. Uh, and so I put those together into this presentation, uh, and I gave it on Sunday, October sixteenth, uh, in Boston. Massachusetts, at the Food Nutrition Conference and Expo at the Convention Center there in Boston, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, I wanted to give you a little talk because it's a really nice summation of kind of everything that I had done uh, over several years with Taste Trekkers. So here it is, and I hope you enjoy it.
0: Your first speaker, Seth, will define and discuss food tourism. Seth Ressler is the founder of the food and travel website, tastetrekkers.com. He's also the producer of the Taste Trekkers Food and Travel Expo, an event that showcases international cuisines and food tour companies. He hosts the Find Dining Podcast, where he interviews culinary experts about their local food scenes. Seth has decades of experience in marketing, events, and broadcasting. His work has been profiled by numerous media outlets, including the Boston Globe, Radio and Records Magazine, WBURFM, and Boston.com. His work in event production and online event promotion earned him a citizen citation from the mayor of Providence and a best of award from Rhode Island Monthly. Please welcome Seth as your first speaker.
3: Thank you very much.
2: Good morning. Can everybody hear me? Uh, thank you for having me. My name is Seth Wrestler. Uh, yes, I apparently cannot spell the word dietitian. I was told that I either had to come up here and admit that, or do the entire presentation in the European accent. And since I can't do the latter, uh, yeah. Uh, and I understand that uh, uh, a lot of you are dietitians, food scientists, nutritionists, things like that. You like facts and figures and statistics, uh, data. I will have none of that for you this morning. I am simply going to tell you the story of how I stumbled into the the world of food tourism uh, quite by accident. Uh, And that story starts four and a half years ago when I woke up in Stanford Hospital. Uh, That is road rash all over my face. It was also all over my torso, my legs, my arms. Uh, That's what happens when you get run over by a car. Uh, Or at least that's what they tell me Happened. That's what's in the police report. I don't actually remember it. Uh, I had a concussion. uh, Or as a doctor put it, uh, we don't actually call it a concussion when it's as severe as what happened to you. We call it a traumatic brain injury. Uh, There's about two months that I don't remember uh, very well. And uh, this left arm suffered significant nerve damage, was in a sling, paralyzed for about a year and a half. So that's how I got into food tourism. (laughs) I was told by the conference that I have to have a slide that discloses uh, all of my affiliations to food companies and whatnot. Um, I have none. <laughs> I don't really know how this works, like is, is, does Monsanto have sleeper agents that get awakened by soybeans or something? Like, <laughs> uh, I am a radio broadcaster, I've been doing radio for 20 years, I've uh, uh, worked on the programming side of radio stations like WBCN when it was here in Boston, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, St. Louis. Uh, uh, Seattle, uh, you know, uh, Silicon Valley, New York City. Uh, that's really where I come from. And I worked on the rock radio side. And I would notice that as I moved from city to city for different radio jobs, that the rock radio scene was different in different places. Here in Boston, you know, the Dropkick Murphys are a big band, and the Mighty Mighty Bostones have been around forever. You go to L.A., and it's oingo boingo and uh, social distortion, right? Uh, I now live in Detroit, and apparently Bob Seger lives... I didn't know when Kid Rock has 17 songs on the radio, you know, things like that. And so as you would go from city to city, you would see this unique culture. Uh, and so that's really where I came from. Uh, and then uh, the, my only affiliation with food was when I lived here in Boston. For a brief time, I ran a social dining group called Mystery Meat. It was a series of foodies, or a group of foodies that would get together to have uh, dinner once a month. But they wouldn't find out where they were going until 24 hours in advance. And so we did all kinds of cool things with food. We, uh, there's something called the, um, uh, the uh, there's a mystery berry that you can eat, and it will bind with your tongue, and it'll make everything taste strange. We did a whole dinner around that. We did uh, dining in the dark, uh, so everybody was blindfolded for the entire meal. We would do a lot of fun things like that. That was my only affiliation with food, and that was how I sort of discovered the food blogger universe and started hanging out with foodies. Uh, but I was really a radio guy. Uh, left radio, went into online marketing, got run over by a car. Uh, and when I got run over by a car, I was essentially housebound uh, and stuck in a you know, bedridden for, for months. And there came a point at which I wanted to do something new. Uh, and so I did the only thing I knew how to do, which is that I pulled out a microphone and I launched a podcast. And uh, I could do that from my bedroom, and I started calling up these food bloggers that I knew here in Boston from the social dining group that I had done. And uh, I started having them do restaurant reviews for a little while. And then I decided I wanted to go beyond Boston. Uh, and so I started calling up food bloggers that I didn't know from other cities. And started asking them questions like, okay, well, I've never been to Memphis. When I go there, what neighborhoods do I need to go to? What foods do I need to try? You know, what restaurants, what chefs do I need to know about? And so that was how I learned about the different food scenes that were happening in different cities across the country. And it struck me that this was very much like the different rock scenes that were happening in different cities across the country. So really, this started as a podcast, and that's how I got into the world of food tourism. Um, Food tourism is basically this idea of exploring different locations through food, you know? And I wanna show you a couple of examples today. Uh, One of the first ones was when I was running a radio station in Providence, Rhode Island. I discovered that in Providence, they have weird names for things. And so I'm actually going to play you a clip here, uh, and really throughout my entire presentation, I'm going to play you excerpts from uh, different people who have been on the podcast over the years. This first one is a food blogger named Michelle Meek. She uh, uh, ran a food blog called The Road Less Traveled. And here she is talking about some of the strange terminology that they use for Rhode Island foods. Do we have audio on the iPad? Let me ask you about a couple of other uh, Rhode Island foods, starting with a cabinet. What's that? What's that?
4: So a cabinet is, is basically like a coffee milkshake. It's coffee ice cream, coffee, um, you know, syrup and, and milk. And it's just mixed in a blender and delicious goodness, of course. Uh, one of my favorite places to get that is actually a place in Warren, Rhode Island. It's a pharmacy that they brew their own coffee to make the syrup. And it's really delicious. It's Delecta Pharmacy.
2: And I could put Jimmy's on my cabinet, right?
4: <laughs> yeah, I suppose you could, although uh, Jimmy's are chocolate sprinkles, and usually you put those on an ice cream cone of sorts. So, y- y- you know, Jimmy's or no Jimmy's is your choice.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, if you ever go down to Rhode Island, make sure you have Rhode Island style calamari. Make sure you try some Dell's lemonade. And if you want to sound like a native, uh, order Jimmy's, which are sprinkles on top of your ice cream, uh, and go get a cabinet and have some coffee milk, which is not coffee and milk. And any Rhode Islander will get really upset with you if you suggest that it is. And so I started to discover that there were all these different little things about different uh, cities. I also lived in St. Louis for a little while. And St. Louis had a lot of very unique foods. It had Ted Drew's ice cream, which is very famous there. Uh, they have something called Emo's Pizza, which uses Provel cheese on top of it. And it's bizarre if you see it. Uh, and one of the things they have is toasted ravioli. So here's a blogger from St. Louis talking about toasted ravioli.
4: But you mentioned the, the toasted ravioli, which in St. Louis, when we say toasted, we do mean fried <laughs> and covered in uh, some kind of breadcrumb cheese concoction. Right. You know, it's got some basic meat filling and sometimes it can be filled with cheese. If you are in a buffet line getting cocktail snacks, you're probably going to see toasted ravioli here.
2: And one of the great places where you can see this in America is actually in barbecue, uh, and specifically in barbecue sauce. There's st- several different styles of barbecue sauce. If you go to Alabama, uh, you'll get a white sauce. If you go to eastern North Carolina, you'll get a vinegar-based sauce. If you go to South Carolina, you'll get a mustard sauce. And so there's a lot of different styles of barbecue throughout the country. Uh, this is me talking to uh, Brock Yarbrough. He's a-, a food blogger from the Memphis GastroBlog, talking about how they eat pulled pork in Memphis. Uh, and then tell me a little bit about the pulled pork.
3: Oh, the pulled
5: pork's is great. Uh, you know, they they cook the whole shoulder, and then they're pulling it apart. And um, good pulled pork won't be soggy, and it won't be dry. It'll be nice and moist, especially when you put on a bread. And you put a little in Memphis. We put coleslaw on top of our pulled pork, and then you uh, put some barbecue sauce on it with the bun, and there you go.
2: So coleslaw there isn't a side; it's more of a almost like a condiment.
5: Exactly. Any barbecue place in Memphis lately, because I guess we've had so many tourists come in and ask, you know, why are you putting coleslaw on my sandwich? They'll actually ask you now, do you want it on the side or on the sandwich? But traditionally here in Memphis, we put it on the sandwich.
2: All right. So this is a good tip to know. I didn't know this. If you want to fit in in Memphis, you don't want to stick out like a tourist. You got to put your coleslaw on your pulled pork sandwich. And so I started to learn that this was not just about the foods that people ate, but often this was about the customs, about the way they ate foods, that people would eat foods in different ways in different places, uh, and they have different habits, whether it was tipping habits, whether it was whether water was brought to your table. There were all sorts of things. And I learned all of this while doing the podcast. By the way, I hope everybody here has eaten breakfast already, because you're probably going to be hungry at the end of this. Uh, here's a blogger from New York City, talking about the difference between East Coast and West Coast oysters, and I had no idea that there was a difference. So I sit down, I'm looking at the menu, and where do I begin?
4: So, you have to start with the oysters. If you're an oyster person, that's where you start. Um, they have East Coast and West Coast, and they change daily. I tend to order East Coast to make Naked Cowboys, not only because they're fun to say, but because they actually taste like the New England Sea.
0: Can you taste the difference between East Coast and West Coast It took me a
4: few years, I have to be honest. I just kind of slowed them down and I originally put a lot of cocktail sauce on them and they were basically just eating like cocktail sauce in your mouth. But once you really, you know, start trying different types and I tend to use just a little mignonette sauce that they serve with a splash of lemon, I find that the East Coast tend to be more saltier, or brinier and have like a real ocean feel, whereas the West Coast might taste more like cucumbers or watermelons. Make maybe more fruity.
2: So, it turns out that there is actually a word for this idea. For this concept that the local environment shapes the flavors in the food. And that word is terroir. And most often, you hear that word used in winemaking. You'll hear the winemakers talk about how the local environment, if you've ever been to a winery and you've done a tasting, they talk about the microclimates, and they'll tell you that the grapes in certain places taste different than the wine that comes from grapes in other places. If the grape is on the sunny side of the hill, it'll taste the wine will taste different than if you use the grapes that are from the shady side of the hill, uh, things like that. But increasingly, I started to hear this word used to describe food uh, as a whole, not just wine. Uh, and in fact, this is something that I think we're seeing, and I, I think it's an interesting moment right now. I, uh, the Wall Street Journal just ran a report that said 80% of millennials, 80% of people between the ages of 18 and 34 have never tasted a Big Mac. And I think, I know everybody here wants to think it's for health reasons, but I also think <laughs> there may be this factor that there may be this renewed interest in local food. That there may be this renewed, that we may be moving away from the Olive Gardens and the TGI Fridays and the McDonald's of the world and looking for things that are locally sourced and uh, really reflect the place that they are. I don't know about you, but when I came here to Boston, uh, I started looking for places that are only here in Boston, that aren't in the city that I'm living in now. Uh, And so that's that idea of terroir. So I wanted to take this to the next level. And what I decided to do was to throw an event. The nation's first Food and Travel Conference. And there I was, still stuck in my bedroom in San Jose, California, and for some reason I decided to put it on in Providence, Rhode Island. (laughs) Uh, And so I went to Kickstarter. I raised $13,000 on Kickstarter. That was perhaps the hardest thing I've ever done, but somehow we, we made it through and we set up this event, and we invited people to come out to the Taste Trekkers Food and Travel Expo that happened for the first time in 2013, In Providence, Rhode Island. Then we came back and we did it again in 2014. And one of the, uh, a lot of the speakers, this was basically to showcase foods from different cities, different regions, different parts of the country. One of our speakers was Chef Sesson Curry, who uh, he and his brother, uh, Omar and his sister, uh, uh, they, uh, his sister Monica started a restaurant called Los Andes in Providence, Rhode Island. If you ever make it down to Providence or Island, absolutely go to this restaurant. They uh, feature foods from their native Peru. Uh, Yelp just named it one of the top 100 places to eat in the United States. It's actually number 54 on the list. Uh, and that's really exciting for me because I remember when these guys started with a little hole in the wall, nothing of a restaurant, we're just getting it off the ground, and now it's, it's huge and, and uh, earning a lot of accolades. But uh, the signature dish there is called ceviche. Ceviche is raw fish, or at least it starts as raw fish. It's usually served in a martini glass, and they cook it using lime juice. The acid from the lime juice uh, uh, cooks the fish. I don't know how that works. There's no heat involved. You guys probably all do, (laughs) but I have no idea. Uh, But here's Chef Curry talking a little bit about the key to making a great ceviche.
3: Well, the the secret to a great ceviche is having the freshest fish possible. You know, like... um Making sure that, that you have the wine. The lime is the most important thing. Because you could have, at the restaurant here currently, we're doing about 10 cases of wine, And each case brings a 200 count. And out of those cases, we select the best limes for the ceviche. Then whatever, it won't be a bad lime, it'll be utilized for the bar. To uh, make caipirinhas, to make uh, pisco sours, and so on and so forth. But we look for these exclusive lines that have you know, the color in the exterior, the color in the interior of the fruit. It has this sweet, but still has acidic uh, 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 taste to it. And that's what it is. Is obviously having a fresh, squeezed lime. You can't pre-squeeze the limes. You have to make sure that when you squeeze the lime, you don't squeeze the lime all the way through because you release the bitterness from the zest of the lime, and it contaminates the ceviche with this, this not enjoyable uh, ceviche taste to it. And there's other little key components, you know, like the first thing that we put in the ceviche is always the salt. I mean, there's, there's only four or five ingredients you put into ceviche, but you have to make sure you put them in the right order. Because that's what makes the difference.
2: And as I started to do this food and travel expo, you know, obviously I'd been interviewing food bloggers from all over the country and uh, started to bring chefs and people like that in. And I knew chefs because I'd been in a restaurant before. Uh, but I ran into a new breed of character that I hadn't seen before. And those were food tour operators, Uh, small business people who were running these uh, small mom-and-pop food tours, Uh, usually a woman, uh, often in her 30s or 40s, who got tired of her desk job and decided she wanted to do something else. Uh, and so went off and started offering food tours of the local neighborhood. Three-hour walking tours where you would go to five or six stops. They might be restaurants. They might be coffee shops. They might be, uh, you know, an olive oil shop or a bakery. Uh, and they would tell you the history of what was going on uh, behind the food and the restaurant uh, and so on and so forth. And the first one I ran into was actually in Providence, Rhode Island. It's a woman named Cindy Silvato who, uh, you know, one of the reasons we chose to do Providence Rhode Island, besides the fact that I had run a radio station there, so I knew a lot of the people there, we also chose to do it because Johnson and Wales University is there, and Johnson and Wales has an excellent culinary program. Uh, Cindy had been an instructor at Johnson and Wales and was one of these people who went off and started her own food tour company. Uh, and I want to give you a sample of what might happen uh, on a food tour. Uh, this is Cindy talking uh, about Shallow Brothers Bakery, which is a bakery on Federal Hill. Federal Hill is the historic Italian neighborhood in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, And Cindy runs a food tour up there. So here's a little sample of what you might hear if you were to go on that food tour.
0: Well, Shallow Brothers Bakery is one of the oldest bakeries left on Federal Hill. And the Shallow Brothers Bakery is now run by the Shallow Sisters. Um, It's a fabulous store. And I want to point out the spelling of the name, actually, and give you a little grammar lesson. It's S-C-I-A-L-O. And in Italian, the the C-I is actually a C-H sound. So for example, C-I-A-O is ciao. So it sounds like there's an H in there. So people say the name wrong all the time. They say Scialo or it gets kind of butchered a lot, but it's Shallow Brothers Bakery.
2: So then what other Italian words am I mispronouncing?
0: Um, Bruschetta. (laughs) The C-H is a K sound. So it really should be Bruschetta. Like Chianti is a C-H-I-A-N-T-I with a C-H in the front. So it's Chianti, not Chianti.
2: As you can see, my spelling's not good. My pronunciation's not good. Um, so, yeah, and it wasn't just Cindy who was doing this. I love that example because it shows you that it's, it's about the food, but it's also about more than the food. It's about the history. It's about the heritage. It's about the culture. Uh, and I think that's what makes these food tours so interesting. Uh, and it's why when you look at TripAdvisor... Uh, The the thing about food tours is nobody knows what a food tour is, but everybody who goes on one absolutely loves them. And so you always see them at the top of the ratings in TripAdvisor as one of the number one things to do when you go to a city. Uh, And so it wasn't just Cindy who was running these. These are popping up in cities all over the country. So much so that there's actually a guy named Shane Cost who uh, started his own food tour company in Chicago, And it was so successful that he then started a second company called Food Tour Pros to help other people launch their own food tour company. And so there's a huge chunk of the food tour operators and the food tour businesses throughout America and even throughout the world who actually trained under Shane and went through Shane's program. So here's a little bit of Shane talking about what happens on a food tour.
1: Food tours are going to be a multicultural experience. We're going to blend the obvious, food, but you're also going to integrate architecture, history, culture as well within cities near and far. It doesn't make a difference if it's a small city, a medium-sized city, or a large city. The idea is, is that some type of transportation, generally walking, so that you can really feel and engage with the local communities, but also certainly you can do it on a bike, Segway, boat, bus. And the idea is, is as you are going through various tastings You're learning a lot about the history of each city integrated, as I said earlier, with a little bit of that historical and cultural component as well.
2: So I started going on food tours, and I got to tell you, this is one of the greatest ways to get an introduction to a city if you haven't been there yet. If you're sticking around for a little extra time, go on a Boston food tour. It's absolutely fantastic, uh, and you know I think this gives you an idea of what happens. But it's a two to three hour walking tour. It's usually a group of anywhere from five to fifteen people who go on it. Uh, they cost between fifty and seventy-five, eighty-five dollars usually, uh, and it's uh, you know usually walking. But sometimes if you're in a hotter or humid place, they might do driving. They might drive you from stop to stop, five or six stops. You're full at the end of it, uh, and it covers a lot, of, uh, a lot of ground. I'm gonna give you another sample. Here is um, Grace Della. She runs Miami Culinary Tours, and here she is talking about the tours that she runs in Miami.
4: It's two and a half hours, so I always tell folks, look, you know,
2: 60% of what we cover is the ingredients and the cultural background and the history of the food that they're trying. Um, and then 40%, we
4: cover history and architecture or art, depending on the neighborhood that we are. But obviously, you know, the focus is that you're going to leave the tour learning, um, you know, the ingredients and and the whys of a culture making, just for example, an empanadas, you know, um, empanadas are very different from one culture to the next, but usually folks don't know that. So you will leave the tour
2: knowing not only where to find the best food, but um, why each of the food items are unique. And of course there's a lot that goes into selecting a food tour route. You've gotta find places that uh, have a story. Uh, and uh, are interesting and are high quality, you also have to find places that will work with you, frankly. Uh, and I think different food tour operators have different relationships with the local places, and I think Sheila might talk about this a little bit more. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to uh, compensate the places on your stops. And frankly, you also have to find stops that are all next to each other. They have to make sense as a as a walking route. So there's a lot of different factors that go into creating uh, a food tour. I'm going to give you an example of one more. Of course, along the way, there's the five or six places that you go, but there will also be trivia about other stops along the way. And I love this. This is uh, this is uh, Vicki Wilson. She runs Vegas Valley Food Tours. These are not food tours of the Strip in Las Vegas. These are uh, food tours of historic downtown Las Vegas. What was the Strip back in, like, the Rat Pack days? Uh, and is now kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's seeing a comeback. Uh, and what's really interesting in this is they don't stop at Denny's. But she says something about Denny's, and I love this little piece of trivia.
0: Yes, so near the Fremont Street Experience, uh, we have the Neonopolis. And in the Neonopolis, we have a Denny's. And that Denny's happens to be the only Denny's in the world where you can get married. So for $1.99, you your 12 of your guests will be treated to a pancake puppy. The bride and groom get their own. It is nicely decorated. You do a champagne toast, and then if you choose to eat there, everybody gets 20% off their meal.
2: So I love this kind of trivia, and so I became really interested in this type of stuff. There is another type of food tour that I discovered, uh, and that is what I call a destination food tour, right? And uh, instead of being a three-hour walking tour around the neighborhood, uh, what this is is you, uh, a food tour operator gets a group of people uh, and takes them to a destination, usually another country. Uh, and might spend days or, or even a week out taking them through a lot of the different places. So I want to give you a little example of that. This is uh, uh, Tatiana Gana. She runs Gastro Tours. She's actually based in New York City, but uh, she gives tours of Spain, and here she is talking a little bit about those tours.
4: Right now we're doing Spain because we believe it is one of the culinary capitals of the world, and it is a place where wherever you go within Spain, you will find something unique in gastronomic experience. So yes, we thought that that was just the best place to start. There's so much to do, and there's so much to be exploited in the area because it's still so very native. It's still so very kept among themselves, and and it's still very raw materials. They haven't, you know, expanded this idea of getting out to the international. Public in bringing people to try foods and to, to look at new things in a different perspective and a different way of looking at them the way they cook, the way they cultivate their meats and their produce, etc. So, this is something that we want to bring to people.
2: And Tatiana touches on it a little bit here, but this idea that, uh, you know, when you go to Spain, uh, there's a lot of areas that they go to that aren't developed yet, and so the food makers, uh, Really, it's a foreign concept to them, this idea that people actually want to make to, to watch them make the food. <laughs> they, they, they're like, what, what do you mean you want to see what we do? We just we make the food. And, and so that's a new concept to them. And I, we're going to come back to that in a moment here. But I want to walk you through another type of destination food tour. This is Chef Jose Duarte. He has a restaurant here in Boston called Toronto. It is in the north end. Uh, he is from Peru, uh, and it's a Peru, uh, Peruvian-Italian fusion uh, and, and very well-respected. He's a very cutting-edge chef, but he likes to take a group of people back every year to his native Peru, and every trip he does is different as they go through the jungle. Uh, one year, he actually took families with little kids, and it was called the Little Gourmet Adventure, and here he is talking about that.
6: Bringing city kids to the jungle, the first stop we did at the the park ranger stop, we hear all these children, oh my god, help me! This big tarantula on the wall. I'm talking about not even the biggest one, but it's a big one. Right. And uh, everybody's like taking pictures and they're, they're, you know, they wanted to touch it and they just the guys, don't touch it because it's gonna sting you, you know, it's gonna... It's some, was this play. was an
2: episode of the Brady Bunch at one point. I'm, I remember this one.
6: Uh, uh, this is this experience. What we did is with this resort, not resort, with this company. It's called Refugio Amazonas. What we did is, they we oriented it to the culinary side. So basically, we look at the biodiversity. We look at all these ingredients that are being, belong to the jungle. Uh, we they had they participated on Anya, which is the story of a little girl of the forest, um, and. They are, it's a foundation, and what they did is they participated and they collected seed and they actually planted trees. They planted more trees for the forest. They got a chance to go to a a 3,000 year old tree and listen to the inner, of the inside of the tree. They got to go into a canopy 40, 40 meters up and see all the canopy uh, side. They got to see some caimans at night in the Tambopata River. Uh, they went to a, a small farm that was across the river that supplies products to the, to, to, to the, to the lodge. So we were eating all these products from, from the local farm. Like popoazoo, the star fruit, and a lot of these, uh, camu Different ingredients are local native, uh, products. They got the chance to try. They had a little cooking class in there with all the native products from the jungle.
2: I really want to go on one of his tours one day. <laughs> that sounds really cool to go through the jungle. So yeah, he's bringing little kids through the Peruvian jungle. Uh, all of this food tourism is starting to have an impact on the tourism industry. Uh, and I think one of the things that's renewing this interest in food is is the media, things like Food Network showing places. And you know a lot of the shows that you will see on the Food Network are cooking shows. But one of the things I discovered in the course of Taste Trekkers is that there are two types of foodies out there. There are cookers, uh, and there are diners. Uh, I am not a cook. I am a diner. I like to eat. Uh, And when you really look at this type of food tourism, there is not a whole lot of media in this space, right? Uh, Every once in a while, Travel and Leisure magazine will write about food. Every once in a while, Food and Wine will write about travel. But it's really kind of Anthony bourdain and that's it. Maybe a little Andrew Zimmern, maybe a little Guy Fieri, but but there's not as much media uh, in this space as there is, for example, on the cooking side. Uh, and all of this is having an impact on tourism professionals. Uh, I mentioned before that uh, Tatiana Gana from Gastro Tours was talking about how a lot of the places in Spain were not used to the idea that people wanted to come in and see them make the food. Uh, Newport Storm is a beer out of Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, And for the longest time, they were brewing the beer. They were a very small, little uh, uh, brewery, and they were brewing the beer out of a storage locker, right? And people kept coming to say, we want to come see you brew the beer. And they were like, it's a storage locker. (laughs) Like, that's all it is, right? And so they finally realized that they needed to create a facility as they were looking for a bigger facility. They not only wanted to increase their production but they wanted to create something that where tourists could come and take a look. And so here's Brent Ryan, the co-founder
1: of Newport Storm, talking about how he considered this as he went looking for the new facility. Uh, the biggest step we made was in 2010. Um, and prior to that, uh, the only time we had visitors at our facility is when we could shut down production and put everything away, um, and that would allow it to be a safe environment for people to be in and quite frankly have enough space for them to be in. In there, and so that was once a week on Fridays at 6 p.m. So for about two hours, we had guests over to our facility uh, to check out what we did. And what we found is that there were a lot of people who wanted to um, visit us, and we didn't even have enough room for those people. So you know, by the end, you know, it would be the middle of February in this parking lot in Newport, Rhode Island, and there'd be snow coming down. It would be freezing cold, and we'd have literally hundreds of people outside our door waiting to get in. And unfortunately, we could only let 75 of them in. So we had a lot of disappointed folks uh, who wouldn't get in. So um, after years and years of searching, um, we found a new site to build a new facility, not only to expand our production, but also really to um, start to tackle this, um, you know, this opportunity of having guests uh, visit us.
2: And this idea of food as an event that people want to come to is having other impacts as well. Uh, Alinea is a very famous restaurant in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Elite Traveler has named it the best restaurant in the world for the fifth year in a row. Uh, It has three Michelin stars, uh, and the chef there, Grant Ackett's, uh, is a fascinating guy. Uh, If you listen to one... Of my podcast episodes, listen to the interview that I did with Chef Grant Atkins, because his story is really amazing. But he does a lot of things with uh, uh, molecular gastronomy. Those balloons that you see there are filled with helium, they are edible, they taste like candy apples, and you can order them there. Uh, and, and so he's got this very high-priced restaurant in Chicago, and he's talking in this clip about how he no longer wants to take reservations. They're starting to sell tickets to the event, like a concert. And he explains why.
5: You know, eating nowadays, especially at higher end restaurants is, is, it's, uh, entertainment. It's no different than going to a concert or going to a sporting event. And so he was sitting there watching oh well, for years go, Oh, those people, they no showed. They have four top. They didn't show up and that four top sits empty and the margins are so thin on restaurants that if that four top does not show up, and we break even for the night and we have, we can't hold them accountable. And we also were sitting there watching, you know, because we we're a wildly popular restaurant, we were watching five reservationists answer phones all day long that we were paying $40,000 a year. So you have 200 grand going to five people answering the phone, telling people on the other end that they can't come to your place of business and spend money. Like, which makes no sense, right? You're denying people the ability for you to make money and you're paying people to tell them that. So um Nick was like, why don't we just sell tickets? And of course, the original argument was it's, it's not hospitable. You know, people are going to get angry. And he goes, look, you know, if, if I got tickets to a Bruce Springsteen concert with my wife and, and another couple, you know, I'd buy four seats. And the couple bails at the last minute because their kid got the flu. I don't call Ticketmaster and say, Hey, my friends got, their kid got sick and they can't come. Can I have my money back? And that's Ticketmaster says we don't care, you know? So in the same way, by, by doing that in the restaurant, you're able to actually reduce the cost, um, for the guests and make it more affordable for them because you're just running better efficiencies and margins.
2: By the way, Mystery Meat, my social dining group in Boston, also had a no-refund policy, so I take credit for this idea. Uh, If you go to the country of Ireland, the number one tourist attraction in the entire country is food-related. It is the Guinness Storehouse. It is the Guinness Brewery. Uh, And they've done a really nice job with it. They've basically turned it into Disneyland for adults. All right? And it's amazing. (laughs) I've been there. Uh, and So I want to give you a little sample of what you would hear if you went on the tour of the Guinness Storehouse.
7: Yeah, delighted to be your guide here today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through some of the main aspects that our visitors get to see when they do visit us here at the Home of Guinness. Uh, And the first one would be right over here. It's actually not only where our tour starts, but it's where the story of Guinness starts. And that goes back to 1759. So there's a name you'll be hearing quite a lot today, and that name is Arthur Guinness. And in 1759, Arthur Guinness moved here from his home in County Kildare. And this document that we see right in front of us, that is a copy of the original lease that he signed. And it was a 9,000-year lease for this premises. So that shows a little bit of commitment. I think wow kind of sums it up. We should point
2: out that your beer is older than my country.
7: (laughs) That is true. This is the biggest beer attraction in the world, and it is the biggest tourist attraction in all of Ireland. Yeah. So, uh, in the last 12 months, we've welcomed 1.2 million visitors from all four corners of the globe. Uh, visitors from here in Ireland, visitors from the US. We get so many visitors coming from Australia, New Zealand, the UK. Absolutely everybody comes here to learn the story of Guinness.
2: And so you're seeing this have an impact on the tourism industry, on destination marketers, on people whose job it is, is to get you to come to a place. Right? People whose job it is, is to get you to visit. Right? Uh, one of the big leaders in this is the Ontario Culinary Tourism Alliance, or OCTA. They've been very active in this. Uh, another city that's done it is Durham, uh, North Carolina. This is Sam Polly, who worked for the Division of Tourism there. Sam is a former chef. Uh, and here he is talking about the role that food plays in marketing the city of Durham.
8: Uh, those of us who do what we do in destination marketing, which is a global You know, multi-billion-dollar field. Understand our product. So, and that's a hard thing for some people to get their brain around. Like, no, it's a place. Well, for us, it's also a product. And for someone to adequately talk to other people about their product, they need to have a good, solid inventory of their product. We're lucky in that we, you know, have a relatively small product. I mean, Durham is a. A destination citywide, 250,000, countywide, it only adds 30,000 for a total of about 280,000 people. And it's tight. We know everything that's here. So, we know our product really, really well. And Durham is very lucky in that it's always had a strong food community. Uh, and that, you know, we, we can trace that back to folks like Tommy Bullock, who, you know, has had, still owns and operates, still works 14 hours a day, the oldest restaurant in Durham. He's been in operation for 64 years uh, with Bullock's Barbecue. On up to people who are really considered some of the forebearers of the modern southern food movement would be Ben and Karen Barker at the Magnolia Grill, uh, both of whom are James Beard Award winners, and uh, you know their restaurant, the Magnolia Grill, was landmark. And that spawned a lot of people uh, out of their kitchens who wanted to stay in this area. So we have this great community that people love and they want to be here. So uh, we've always known that food was really strong as a product for us to talk to other people about. So much so that really, food is part of our DNA. It's like you know the earth, you know the sun rises in the east. Two plus two is four, and there's good food in Durham. And so we've always had this great thing to talk about in terms of our food offerings.
2: And I want to end by going back to the country of Ireland, because Ireland has done this as well. Ireland has really rediscovered its food scene, and that happened because of the Celtic tiger, because of the economic downturn there. Uh, for a long time in Ireland, everybody thought great food meant from the continent, and it's only recently that they've sort of rediscovered this idea of simple ingredients that come from uh, from their own country. Uh, and it's a factor in tourism. They know it's not the number one factor. They know that people don't go, oh, I want to go to Ireland to try the great food but they do know that it's a huge factor in the experience that you have when you are there, uh, and it affects the the uh, satisfaction you have with your visit. So they've been working on a big project called the Wild Atlantic Way, uh, which goes up the west coast of Ireland. Dublin is on the east coast. Uh, and it's basically a driving route that takes you through different cities along there. Uh, and here is uh, Helen McDade, who uh, also works in tourism uh, for the country of Ireland, and she's talking about the Wild Atlantic Way and the role that food plays in it.
9: The Wild Atlantic Way is, ultimately it's a driving route. It's basically about 2,500 kilometres long. And it stretches from the Inishon Peninsula right up in the northwest, right down along the western seaboard, right down as far as Kinsale in the southwest. So it it hugs the coast pretty much the whole way along. And the, the thing about the Wild Atlantic Way is it's a great way to... Explore mm-hmm. and, and to get off the beaten track and to find those gems and come across these things and and stop in up in, in Donegal Harbour where you can go out and they'll help you catch a fish and then bring it in and cook it for your dinner and and you can do all of those type of things. So it's it's really captured the imagination both for Irish people themselves and for international visitors. So that was actually just launched last year. So that's really about a 10-year project. We have quite a bit of... um continued development to do there like we've identified about 16 signature viewing points so we want to do a bit of infrastructure around that just to facilitate obviously parking and visitor stopping and all of those type of things so um, yeah so it's a very very exciting project and I think food's a great link with it because what better way to, to get to know the area you're in yeah. than to actually taste the food oh, that's from it
2: by the way when I was uh, driving up Wild Atlantic Way about a year and a half ago Got into a car accident, wound up in the emergency room. (laughs) It's the second time. I don't know why that keeps happening to me. So pronunciation, spelling, and apparently driving. (laughs) Three things I shouldn't be involved with. Uh, But that's it for me. That's the story of how I discovered and learned this world of food tourism. I hope that that uh, turns it on to you as well. Uh, And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Sheila Campbell of A La Carte Food Tours. Thank you very much.